Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, and I just was getting teased here by my colleague, Dr. Susanna Greer. Hello, Susanna, you big meanie. I would never tease you, Joe. You're such a delight to work with. I, I, unlike our listeners, I can see your face as you say that. <laughs> so how are you doing? I am. Um, I'm happy today. And you? Same, same. I am awaiting the thunderstorm that you say is at your house and whatever weather you have, I have 10 minutes later. So I'm just waiting it out. (laughs) That's what happens in Atlanta when it rains. So, but for the moment, I'm good. Uh, And I'm good too. And we just listened to an epidemiologist and we love epidemiology at ACS. We of course fund all kinds of cancer research. We conduct cancer research. But ACS and Epi go way back, um, you know. So we have a long history of conducting seminal research on cancer risk factors. CPS two, CPS three are still ongoing. But shout what we talked about, Dr. Alpa Patel and her team. That's right. Shout out to Dr. Alpa Patel and her team. But today we spoke with one of our grantees, a new grantee, just getting a, her grant. Actually, is going to go into effect July first. Dr. Lisa McKenzie. She's a clinical assistant professor at the Colorado School of Public Health. So she has the good sense to live there in the shadow of the Rockies. And her work, Susanna, oh, it's a little bit um it's a little bit tough. It's a little gut-wrenching actually to to learn about. Yeah, it's a little unnerving, Joe, but you know, Lisa, so what what she's going to talk to us about is the oil and gas industry and exposures to both known and suspected carcinogens from oil and gas and the impacts that they may have on our most vulnerable population, on kids. So, you know, one of the the take-home, I had a few take-homes. So first of all, she explained in a way that even Joe and I could understand (laughs) exactly why things are changing and why things have changed, which I, I've never really had a solid picture of that because, you know, oil and gas have been around for a long time. They're not going anywhere. Why all of a sudden do we hear about fracking and what is that? So she, beautiful explanation. I, I got it now. And why is there exposure then to carcinogens during the process of extracting um, oil and gas, and especially why during fracking. So again, oh, lovely explanation. Okay, and then when, if we think about the fact that there would be exposures, how do we know that? And she shared with us how communities might share that things smell different and taste different and you know feel great. And then why would we be especially concerned about that in kids? So she gives us all this great background information and then talks about her ACS funded study, which is to study based on some really, really tough pilot data that she had. So pilot for our listeners just means new and small. So a small study that showed that the closer kids in Colorado lived to an active oil um, well, the more likely they were to be diagnosed with um, childhood leukemia. So she's expanded that study now, and it is just a lovely study design and will help us to understand, as she said, is this true? If it's not true, then 
that that is something we absolutely need to know and understand because as she said we would not want to target our cancer um, prevention strategies in this space because there's so many other places we would want to target them if it is true then she shared with us you know the things that we could do and and the things that they are doing in Colorado and in every and in many other states and and locales to reduce exposures to these in really vulnerable populations. So I think you're going to enjoy this podcast. As Joe said, it's not an easy topic. Um, these weren't um, easy things for me to read, but uh, certainly not easy questions to write. But my goodness, so glad that Lisa is a part of the ACS team, that she's out there doing her work. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy learning more about um, this incredibly impactful area she's in. Hey, Lisa, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing, Susanna? Great. It is a rainy day in Atlanta. You are calling in from Denver, Colorado. How are things your way? Oh, it's a relatively cool day here in Denver. Sun's out and we're enjoying a break from the heat today. Nice. Nice. It's so fun to talk to people from all over the country in the podcast. I really love that. Well, if you're ready, we're going to jump in and today we're going to talk about one of your areas of expertise which i think is fascinating and i honestly knew next to nothing about so i i think our listeners are really going to enjoy this so you study the relationship between oil and gas and it, the environmental exposures that come from oil and gas um, and their relationships to childhood cancers. So I, th I think before we jump into what you do, can you just help us understand more about this industry? Um, I had so many questions, but just things like how are oil and gas maybe extracted, transported, uh, all those things that when you don't think about oil and gas industry that, you know, would, would help us set the stage for your work. Okay, so uh, oil and gas, the work I'm doing is on what we call upstream oil and gas development. So this is the part of oil and gas development where they're actually removing the oil or the natural gas from the ground. And this has been going on for, for a long time in the United States, um, you know, over 100 years. But recently, there's been new technology that has allowed them to go into resources they couldn't get to before. These are unconventional resources, and um, some people may have heard this referred to as fracking. So, um, so this is specifically what I'm looking at is all the processes around um, this going after these unconventional resources. And since they can go for more resources, they're becoming increasingly located nearer to where people live and work. And what they're doing I don't know, uh, on some parts of the United States, people have seen those big drill rigs. So they go and they drill a hole deep into the ground, um, sometimes to depths of six to 7,000 feet. And then um, they can, in addition to going vertically, they can go horizontally or directionally under the ground. So they can go two miles out from the well they drilled using horizontal drilling. They use, uh, then they put some, um, mostly water with some chemicals and sand in it under very high pressure to open up these shale resources so that oil or gas can start to flow back to the surface. 
And as it flows back to the surface, they then collect it and they sell it. So that's a very um, brief description of what they're doing um, in the upstream part. So, okay, thank you. Yeah. That was that was exactly what I needed. And I think the words you started with was that this isn't new, mm -hmm. that this has been happening for a hundred years, but that fracking um, is un allowing the oil and gas industry to access unconventional, I think you use the word resources and it's unconventional just because of how, how far in the ground the resources are. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. So what I mean by unconventional resources is it's things like the um, shale. So the, I think the most famous one people hear about in the United States is the Marcella shale in Pennsylvania and back east. But we also have these and in the shales, the gas and oil is held very tightly. It doesn't, it's, it's not sitting down there in a liquid form. So they have to um, break that apart to allow that to start flowing out. And so they needed new technologies to be able to do that. And, and um, the type of fracking they're doing is one of the new technologies and the horizontal drilling is another one. And then some things with being able to see underground is another new technology that has allowed them to do this all this. And so they can go after these resources that they just didn't have the technology to tap into before. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And and the other thing that you said is that because of these new technologies that the oil and gas industry is now overlapping with humans more, like where people live. And is the reason for that just because maybe if you're going to, in a really simple way to think about it. You said this industry has been going on for a really long time, but maybe if I were going to buy a house in 2020, I I wouldn't buy a house near a an, an oil rig that had been around since 1950. I, I could make a decision to buy a house somewhere else, but with these new industries and, and these unconventional resources like fracking, it sounds like the industry has expanded to areas where people had no idea that the oil and gas industry would be. Is that a, a reasonable assessment? I think that is a reasonable assessment. And that's how um, people that I took, talk to that live in these areas describe it to me. They didn't know this resource was um, under them <laughs> and, and uh, have been quite surprised when it ha has showed up in their neighborhoods. Okay, so kind of in that vein, what, what types of concerns would these communities raise regarding having this industry close by? So are there concerns around like, you know, the things you read you know, when you're reading like the New York Times or, or your local paper would be like things like water pollution and air pollution? Yeah, so people were originally very concerned with uh, water pollution um, from the fracking, but as as time has gone by and as more research has been done, they've also become um, concerned with air pollution. So the first reason why people are concerned and what you hear people complain about the most around this is um, that are living fairly nearby are things like odors, they smell things. Um, and then they complain, of, they have some health complaints. Uh, these are self-reported health complaints, but things like bloody noses, headaches, um, dizziness sometimes, um, feeling sick. 
sometimes rashes. So, and then the other big complaint they have around the industry that might not be related at all to cancer, but is noise. There, there's a lot of noise associated with it. So, so these are all complaints people have had. And then the health res or the research on air pollution and water has found that that chemicals are emitted from these sites um, that are emitted to the air and have less frequently, but also been emitted to the water. Okay, interesting. So the story that you're setting up for us is that you have communities who had no idea these resources were around them. And I think it's fascinating. You said that they weren't necessarily nearby, that they they could have been, you said six to 7,000 feet either below or you know, horizontally or vertically. I mean, it's not like it's right under you. So surrounding your home or maybe where your kids are in school or where you go to the grocery store. So there were these oil and gas resources and all of a sudden the, the industry is newly in your area. And then over time, individuals within the community began to complain of things like uh, you mentioned odors, just not feeling great, and you mentioned mm -hmm. smells. And mm -hmm. then, so I think as probably a follow-up to some of those complaints, we began to investigate as a country what's in the water and what's in the air and chemicals were found. Um, so this is an American Cancer Society podcast, so let's talk a little bit more about maybe what we know about what are the probable or even possible carcinogens that are associated with this industry. So I'll first start this with, um, we don't know all the chemicals that are associated with the industry. Um, that's still ongoing research. But one of the ones that we do know about is benzene. And benzene is a known human carcinogen. It is part of the oil and gas resource itself. It, benzene is contained in very small amounts within natural gas and oil when it comes out of the ground. And it's a, that's because it's a hydrocarbon. Uh, benzene, as I said, it's a known uh, carcinogen. It's emitted to the air during certain processes as they're extracting the oil and gas. And it also has been released to the water. There are a couple other um, suspected carcinogens, I guess I would say. One is ethylbenzene, and then they use diesel engines oftentimes to support for the big equipment they have on the sites and trucks to bring things on and off the site. And in diesel itself is a known uh, human carcinogen. And then the PM 2.5 within the diesel and the benzene within the diesel are known human carcinogens. Okay, so as the story continues to evolve, you have communities where fracking is occurring and people are reporting not feeling great, strange smells, um, complaining of noise. The community investigates and finds chemicals in the air and water, and some of those are both known and suspected carcinogens. So you are particularly interested in one type of cancer. You study childhood acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Will you tell us a little bit about this disease itself? And then maybe we'll we'll talk about why 
why you're interested in this disease that that we call in in the literature we call it ALL. Yeah, so in the literature it's called ALL. So it's a it, it's a very well it's it's a rare disease fortunately, but it's one of the most common childhood cancers. And it affects young children. So children um you know 2 to 9 years we're we're looking at children 2 to 9 years old. The age uh, where most children get it is around four or five years old. So it's it's young children that this is affecting, and it's a cancer of the of the blood. So it, it affects the blood cells. Um, and benzene is actually it said it was a carcinogen, but it's a known leukemogen. It, it's known to cause leukemia. We know this because in studies on workers that. Have, in the shoe industry and some other industries that have been exposed to very high levels of benzene, they've had, they've associated with acute myeloid, myeloid leukemia. That is not as common in children. And there's some evidence now that the way benzene is metabolized in the body differs with the concentration of benzene that you're exposed to. And that um, exposures to benzene at lower concentrations goes through a different metabolic pathway. There's some evidence showing that produces a metabolite that is carcinogenic or leukemogenic, produces more of that metabolite. So that's, and we don't have a lot of studies on children exposed to benzene because, you know, children aren't working. We don't have those occupational um, studies for children. It's mainly been adults. So is there a reason that you'd be particularly interested in then studying? I mean, so you're right. We don't have, thankfully, <laughs> children going in to factories anymore and, and doing work where they'd be exposed to benzene. But is there a reason that children otherwise could be particularly vulnerable to a carcinogen? And in this case, a leukemogen like benzene, is there something... Uh, about, I guess, ALL, which is making it susceptible to DNA damage, would be another way to ask the question. Yes. So children, um, always in environmental health, we're particularly concerned about children. And the reason why is um, for something like a carcinogen, for a child to be exposed to a carcinogen, they'll have their entire life to have the health effects from that carcinogen. That's one reason why children are particularly vulnerable. Another reason is children are just the fact that they're smaller. So a, a dose in a child per body weight is bigger than it would be in an adult. And another reason is children oftentimes um, react to things differently than adults do. They, they may metabolize them differently. They also have different behaviors. If we think about air exposures, children have a, a slightly uh, faster uh, breathing rate than, than adults do. So all these are reasons why we're concerned about children. The other reason why we're concerned about children with ALL and oil and gas, and this is our second uh, hypothesis in the study, is also with these new um, resources they're going after, oftentimes you can have a very large workforce and their families coming into an area to develop it. And that introduces this concept known as population mixing, where they might be bringing pathogens with them that 
and I need to explain population mixing. So population mixing is um, the idea that very young children, so infants or um, children about from zero to two years of age, might not have, for some reason, their immune system either might not have been challenged to pathogens in the past or very many, or they might have um, inherited an immature immune function. And so when a novel path pathogen comes in, it causes their immune system to go into an abnormal response. And that there's this theory that that might also be responsible for some childhood leukemia. So we're going to explore that too. So that's another particular vulnerability of young children is their, their immune systems are still forming. Okay, wow, so, so interesting. So you have these communities where folks are noticing that things are just different. Things smell different, they don't feel great. There's a lot of noise going on. And there are, as you said, lots of people coming in. There's people to participate in the work involved in either the fracking itself or maybe just to be involved in the economics of the city, uh -huh. right? To, yep. to, to work in the stores and the restaurants and the shipping and all the things that are gonna happen as a city or a township builds up around this industry. So lots, lots of growth in a community and with that comes kids. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you shared is that we're really concerned about kids um, in this space because they are different than adults. I mean, they are little, right? <laughs> so yeah. they're small. They get a bigger dose of all these things that parents and adults are noticing, the smells, the sounds, the, the taste, all these things. Because kids are just smaller, they're getting a bigger, quote unquote, dose of these things. They're going to react differently. They're going to have this really rapid respiration. And so that's a piece of what you're studying. The second piece is that kids' immune systems are really, really evolving very quickly and differently. And their immune systems are still getting um, challenged by their environments and by all the pathogens, which we would think of as being the bacteria and the viruses and yeast and fungi and everything around them. And and if all of a sudden that changes really rapidly because mom and dad moved to a different part of the country, that is what you're you're sharing with us is called population mixing. And or so it's not so much mom or dad moving to another part of the country um, in this sense. It's more a whole bunch of new people coming into their area with new. Ah, OK. OK. So the opposite of that. So yeah. it is. It's the influx of different um, populations coming together and bringing with them all of their, I guess, um, pathogens that they would then share as a community. Would that yes. be a better way to say it? Yes. Okay. Okay. So we have two different exposures. I would. I, yeah. I, I'm wondering if we could call it for kids that would put them at risk potentially for. Um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. One would be the actual um, known and suspected carcinogens, and the other would be questions about population mixing. Correct. Okay, fantastic, thank you. So, so here's the big question then, has this proximity, which would be encompassed in those two exposures, actually 
been associated with childhood ALL? So uh, what we did was a um, pilot study where we looked at all the children in Colorado's cancer registry. So these included children with um, acute lymphocytic leukemia, and we compared them to children with other types of cancer. And we looked at where they were living relative to oil and gas development in the state. And what we found was that children that had been diagnosed with ALL were about four times more likely to be living in Colorado's areas with the most oil and gas wells. Wow. I mean, that sounds like a big number. Is, is that a big number to you? That's a big number in environmental health, but that was a, a pilot study. So that's why we want to do this next study. So tell me, when we think about the number of kids in the United States, how, how many children in the U.S. would you say actually maybe live near oil and gas industry? How many kids could potentially be impacted by this work? So the last estimate I've seen is about, I think about maybe 3 million children are living within a mile of one of these types of sites. Wow, okay. So it, it's a lot of little people, a lot of children. Yeah, a lot of children. All right, so I guess one question I have for you, which if I was listening, I'd really wanna know is if we already know that living near and having exposures to oil and gas industry and especially to fracking based on your preliminary data which as you said it's a small study it's a pilot and your funding from the American Cancer Society is going to grow that study so if we already know though that childhood cancers increase the closer that children live to oil and gas exposures what what more do we need to know what what are we going to learn so in in our pilot study, we didn't consider population, we didn't separate population mixing from air exposures. And we had some um, other advances that we're going to have in this study. So instead, so we compared to other children that had cancer. And so that's probably one of the biggest limitations of that pilot study. It's because those children with the, those other cancers could have also had something to do with oil and gas development or not. Um, so that we're going to look compare now to children any child born in Colorado we're going to tie all these uh, children back to our birth registry so we're not going to compare our children with leukemia to children with another cancer we're going to compare them to children without that have not been diagnosed with cancer so that's going to be um, really help uh, that's a strength of the new study we're also not just going to look at how many oil and gas wells are around these children this time. We're going to actually go in and look at the intensity of the activities that were occurring on the well sites in the years before they were diagnosed with cancer. And we're going to be able to look at how much they were moving around, if they were at the same site for the entire time before they were diagnosed with their cancer, or if they had moved in and out of a region with oil and gas. So we'll be able to track their uh, residential history which is important when you think about exposure. 
And we're going to uh, also look at some very specific measures of population mixing. So we'll look at that separately and also as a um, as a um, as a modifier. So we'll we'll look at both of those things to see if population mixing and um, air mix air pollution are working together to um, cause childhood leukemias. So do they work synergistically together or not? So if I was a parent listening to this podcast, I would be thinking these are absolutely our most vulnerable populations. This, these are my these are my precious babies. What what difference can your study make for for children? So what we're hoping um, and, and why we think this study is really important to do is we're hoping as we do this study, first of all, we can learn what about oil and gas development may be associated with these childhood leukemias. And then once we know that, then we can work with our regulators, our lawmakers in the industry to start reducing that particular exposure um, or advise parents uh, protective measures that they could take during particular um, processes during oil and gas development. So we already know that there are some processes where there are more benzene emissions than other processes, for example. So can new technologies be developed to control those emissions? Um, if the industry knows they're going to have to have an emission, are there other things they can do to protect children? Uh, we already have some things going on in Colorado uh, around schools, oftentimes, or sometimes, I shouldn't say often, but sometimes operators are saying, okay, we're only going to do these particular operations that are known to have the highest emissions in the summer when children are not in school, not in that school, if their uh, operation is near a school. So these are the kinds of things that we can start thinking about um, once we know more about um, the relationships and can sleuth, sleuth out more information, I should say. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. I I know that in a perfect world, you you wouldn't need any more data than what you already have, but it sounds like you do. You need the actual the data to make people do the right thing. Would you say yeah. that that's true? Well, we need more data to support those pilot results. So there, I think what you're wanting to talk about is this thing known as the precautionary principle. So yeah. um, so when you have a, some evidence and maybe not enough evidence to say that there's absolutely an association, that maybe you should take a more cautious approach and just be protective now. But the industry would come back and and um, maybe not just the industry, maybe other people would come back and say, well, there are a lot of costs involved with that. So we want um, we want to be a little more sure. I will say here in Colorado, I can't speak for everywhere in the country. Colorado is um, strengthening a lot of their rules around oil and gas development about how close it can be to homes and schools. They've just increased the distance between the sites and schools. Um, they've four times the distance now. So it was 500 feet, and now it's 2,000 feet from a home. Um, they're putting more um, restrictions on emissions and monitoring for those emissions. So they are acting proactively. 
It's exactly what I wanted to talk about. So <laughs> you've mentioned a lot about Colorado and that may be where where this conversation needs to end, but a lot of our listeners don't live in Colorado. So and this is the American Cancer Society. Yeah. So in in your kind of best case scenario, I'd love to know are there national and maybe even global policy implications of your study on oil and gas environmental practices that you could see happening in the next five or 10 years? Yeah, so I I do know that now the uh, EPA is again revisiting their regulations around oil and gas development. They were um, weakened in the last administration and they're being reviewed again. Hopefully they'll be strengthened again. in the United States, oil and gas development is mainly regulated at the state level. Um, I know I'm on a um, board in California, um, a public health expert board, where we're advising uh, California's regulators about public health implications of oil and gas development and rules that they might want to consider to better protect the public. There have been um, rulemakings and changes in Pennsylvania Um, New York, I think, still has their moratorium on (laughs) fracking. (laughs) Uh, Some countries in the world have moratoriums, others do not. This is starting to be more development internationally than there was before. It started out, the fracking was primarily happening in North America. It's expanding to other areas in uh, South America, Africa um, are two that I'm aware of. I don't think to the extent that it is in the United States, it involves a lot of technology. It's not necessarily that easy to do. So that has slowed it down in other areas, I think. So it sounds like the the progress is piecemeal, but it also sounds like all those pieces are so necessary. So, I I mean, especially if things happen at a state level. So I, I, um, wow, I'm so incredibly impressed with what you're doing. has there been an impact of ACS funding on, on it, it sounds like you had a pilot and now you've taken that pilot and expanded it. I think our listeners would love to hear how the ACS was involved. So I'm, I'm really uh, excited and grateful that I have this ACS funding to uh, continue the study. Um, without this, I would have had to stop at the pilot study and wouldn't uh, be able to explore population mixing versus the air emissions. I also, um, so we would just have this one pilot study, which, you know, has its limitations and is is easy for people that wanted to track to poke holes at. So we will have a stronger study. And I think that's really important. I'm also um, really, this is great that the American Cancer Society is providing us this opportunity to really start digging in to where down the road we can say, okay, we, we think that this is more the issue around oil and gas development in regards to childhood cancers. Now there's always the possibility we might find that um, our pilot study was incorrect and um, that maybe it isn't as big of an issue as we thought it was. So I do need to you know, put in that caveat too. That's, that's a, a good reason for doing more study because we don't want to put a lot of resources around cancer prevention where we don't need to either. We want to make sure that our efforts are targeted where they need to be targeted. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lisa. This has just been extraordinarily educational. I I think our listeners would, would love to hear a message um, 
from you. Uh, many of our listeners are cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers. Is there something you would like to share with this audience in particular? So I think what I would like to tell the listeners is the type of study I'm doing it, it isn't going to be able to tell you that you know this particular exposure caused the cancer that you might be experiencing. Um, unfortunately, that's not the way epidemiology works. Um, but what it can do is hopefully down the road is help prevent anyone else or fewer people to maybe have the cancer, particularly in my study, leukemia, that you are working with in your life right now. Thank you, Lisa. It's a beautiful summary of what epidemiology is all about, that you're helping to prevent fewer people from having the same struggles that you do. We have a wonderful intramural team of epidemiologists at the ACS and certainly support wonderful epidemiologists like you in our extramural program. So we're really grateful for you and wish you all the best. Thanks for taking some time to chat with us today. Well, thank you, Susanna, for this opportunity to uh, explain my research to your listeners.